1: May 1, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our guest today is Philip S. Barry, MD, MBA, FCCM. We will be discussing one of his recently published articles from the April edition of Critical Connections entitled "Prophylactic Antimicrobial Use in the ICU." Dr. Barry is chief of the Division of Surgical Critical Care and Trauma, as well as the director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center here in New York City. In addition, he is a professor of surgery and public health at Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Dr. Barry is well-known in the field of surgical critical care, and he currently sits on the executive committee of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much, Phil, for being with us today.
2: Good day to you, Rich, and uh, thank you very much for having me on your program.
1: It's becoming clearer... That antibiotics are now a double edged sword in the ICU and they must be used properly. And I thought we'd begin by having you make some introductory or overview comments regarding the use of antibiotics for prophylaxis in the ICU.
2: I think double edged sword is an apt description of antimicrobials and their role in healthcare today. Uh, certainly, they save lives and treat infections, but considering the problems that we're observing, with multi-drug resistant bacteria causing infections in susceptible hosts such as critically ill patients and also the side effects of uh, antibiotic use, most notably the recent increase in virulence of Clostridium difficile and the cases of colitis that it causes that we really do have to be careful about how we use antibiotics. In my own practice, I try to keep in mind that uh, the decision to give a parenteral antibiotic to a patient should be weighed with the same gravity as the decision to give any other parenteral drug, for example, a parenteral antiarrhythmic. They can be as helpful and as dangerous as you can possibly imagine. One thing for our listeners that I'd just like to make clear is that today we're going to be speaking about antimicrobial prophylaxis, which is short-term use of antibiotics to prevent infection. We're not here today to discuss the use of antibiotics as therapy for established infections, which I'm sure would occupy in its entirety another one of your podcasts.
1: Your your article in Critical Connections really uh, organized this very nicely, and as you know, I'm sure better than I do, it is often confusing in the surgically critically ill patient, uh, why are we giving this antibiotic? And as your article points out, and then we'll get into some details, it isn't just that the bowel may have been opened, or it, I find it often confusing when you're working with the residents to say, you know, are we treating early severe sepsis here, or is this three doses of still surgical site infection prevention prophylaxis, and maybe if you'd like to start there, since that comes up a lot in my life.
2: Well, certainly the issue of antimicrobial prophylaxis is one that is especially germane to surgical practice. And the prescription of those antibiotics, which purely are for uh, prevention of surgical site infection, does continue beyond the operating room into the uh, intensive care unit, perhaps for far longer than it should. Recent data that have been collected by the uh, Surgical Infection Prevention Project, or SIP, which is a cooperative project of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and the American College of Surgeons, have shown that although single-dose prophylaxis is probably sufficient, and 24 hours of prophylaxis and no longer than that is the standard that is coming to be accepted, only 40% of surgical patients right now who receive prophylactic antibiotics in the United States receive as short a course as 24 hours. So what that means, Rich, is that the most recent uh, data available, and this was published in the archives of surgery in February last year, is that 60% of surgical patients who receive antibiotic prophylaxis are receiving it for longer than they need to. And if you consider what the downside is, acquisition of methicillin-resistant staph aureus as the causative pathogen in surgical site infection and some of these other problems that we've been talking about, Extending these prolonged courses of prophylaxis is pure risk and no benefit, in my opinion.
1: Right. And along those lines, I was actually going to read a, a quote from your from your article and have you comment on it. It is well established that penetrating abdominal trauma with a perforated hollow viscus requires only 24 hours of prophylaxis with a second-generation cephalosporin if surgical intervention is prompt within four hours. And although injury of the colon increases the risk of infection, the said risk is not decreased by prolonged prophylaxis. Indeed, prolonged prophylaxis increases the risk of infection. And I, I guess if I could ask you to comment, it's the kind of thing, again, where you're working with residents and you say, well, you know, the, they're giving antibiotics must be good in this situation. And I guess the data is to the contrary. <laughs>
2: Well, the data are to the contrary for the most part and this is this is probably the best studied area of surgical prophylaxis of all, of all in that we have perhaps 20 randomized prospective trials that would qualify as class 1 data. Basically, what the data show is that if there is penetrating abdominal trauma, be it a stab wound or a gunshot wound or an impalement, Of some kind, if there's no hollow viscous injury, all that's really needed is a single dose of antibiotics. Where the studies get really interesting, and they're very consistent and very strong on this point, is that even if the intestine is injured, even if the colon is injured, uh, 24 hours of antibiotics is equivalent to five days of antibiotics. There's no benefit whatsoever to the longer course. And what we're speaking about when we talk about the risks are that there is evidence not only of resistant organisms causing surgical site infection, but also increased rates of ventilator-associated pneumonia, increased rates of catheter-related sepsis and catheter-related bacteremia, and also increased rates of urinary tract infection, all of which have been associated with prolonged antibiotic prophylaxis.
1: And so uh, I would imagine then, so if you're on rounds with a patient like this, the key thing is as a group to say, is this patient showing signs of infection or not? And then if they aren't, shut off the antibiotics, right? Is that sort of the idea?
2: Um, Yes and no, because what you're describing is certainly apt when you've started antibiotics presumptively for presumed sepsis. Okay, okay. I would certainly agree that, you know, clinical judgment plays an important role in initial empiric use for therapy, and then when your culture data come back, uh, you either ta- tailor your regimen to narrow it or you discontinue the antibiotics altogether. That uh, strategy has been called uh, de-escalation by uh, Michael Niederman another uh, member of our society. But what we're really speaking about in terms of antibiotic prophylaxis is coverage for a very short period of time surrounding an operation or a procedure for the most part. There are some disease states uh, where antibiotic prophylaxis appears to be indicated. But for the most part, we're talking about uh, preventing the inoculation of a wound during a procedure or an operation. Uh, well before infection would become established, which at the earliest would be maybe day four or day five. Right.
1: So then, to correct me, the antibiotics shouldn't be there on rounds the next day anyway, if this is done properly. I I just want to try and get this right.
2: That's correct. And if they are there on rounds the next morning, that would be the time to stop them.
1: Got it. I did want to spend a few minutes just to let you talk a little bit more about one area of your article that I thought was great. Uh, You talked about three particular procedures, uh, percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy. You talked about uh, chest-tube thoracostomy and ventriculostomies. Um, And I thought what you wrote was very, very interesting. And if you could just sort of take it from there, uh, some of the data that you presented in this part.
2: One of the reasons why antibiotic prophylaxis is often prolonged is out of the well-intentioned but ultimately erroneous uh, belief that if you cover an indwelling drain or catheter with antibiotics, you will reduce the risk of infection related to that catheter. It just isn't true. We don't cover Foley catheters, for example, to prevent urinary tract infection. It doesn't work. We don't cover arterial Uh, catheters or central venous catheters with antibiotic prophylaxis. It just doesn't work. But somehow, the notion, uh, the fallacious notion, that antibiotic uh, coverage of other tubes uh, in dwelling might be appropriate. The two places where I see this the most are, number one, uh, mediastinal drainage tubes following open heart surgery, where it is often uh, preferred that the antibiotics continue until the mediastinal tubes are removed. that prolonged antibiotic continuation really has no no role in my opinion. The other place where antibiotics are clearly continued too long uh, as a generality is to cover soft suction drains after patients have had free flap microvascular reconstructions or other plastic surgical reconstructions not only should those drains, not be covered by antibiotics, they probably themselves ought to come out sooner. But with respect to these bedside procedures of of which we speak, you mentioned uh, percutaneous gastrostomy or PEG, you mentioned tube thoracostomy or chest tube, and you mentioned uh, cerebral ventriculostomy for usually for head injury management. Let's take them separately. First with PEG, you are essentially doing a gastrotomy. And although the stomach, when its acidity is normal, doesn't harbor many bacteria, there, are, there can be bacteria uh, overgrowing in the stomach when acid suppression is suppressed, as we often do for prophylaxis of stress-related gastric mucosal hemorrhage. There is one study, one randomized, albeit open-label trial, that has shown that single-dose prophylaxis with ceftriaxone, which is a third-generation cephalosporin, did decrease local infections at the uh, site on the skin where the tube is secured by more than 50%. So that does suggest that some sort of antimicrobial prophylaxis should be used, although I would disagree with the authors in their choice of agent. Personally, I don't think third-generation cephalosporins should be used at all, ever, for prophylaxis. With respect to tube thoracostomy, the data are even less clear. The problem with that literature in general, although there are several trials, is that the index infection that should be the primary outcome, specifically empyema, thoracis, is actually uncommon. And so it's very difficult to power even a randomized controlled trial adequately when the infection that you're trying to prevent is so unusual. So in the guidelines of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, only a level 3 recommendation is offered for prophylaxis of chest tubes. To be more specific, this is trauma chest tubes or chest tubes inserted under emergency conditions, as you might in the trauma bay or during a code in the intensive care unit, and only then for 24 hours with cefazolin. Chest tubes that are inserted under controlled circumstances, such as you might be doing at the bedside in the ICU to drain a pleural effusion or uh, being placed in the operating room after a thoracotomy or a sternotomy, don't appear to be influenced favorably at all by antibiotics.
1: So that's a really important point. So the not only the procedure, but the setting in which the procedure is being performed.
2: Yes, particularly in the case of tube thoracostomy. If you have control over the situation when that chest tube is going in, there doesn't appear to be any benefit from antibiotic prophylaxis. Now, with cerebral ventriculostomy, people are very nervous because we know that the rate of indwelling ventriculostomy catheters, which are used to monitor intracranial pressure or to drain cerebrospinal fluid and therefore manage raised intracranial pressure in patients after traumatic brain injury and in selected patients after uh, craniotomy for tumor, the infection rate of those catheters is about 10%. And so oftentimes neurosurgeons will be fairly vociferous in their opinion that these catheters should be covered with antibiotics for the entire period that they are indwelling. But the data say otherwise. The data say that it is reasonable to cover the insertion procedure itself, which increasingly is a bedside procedure with a single dose of cefazolin but that all that happens with prolonged antibiotic prophylaxis is that the infection when it occurs will be caused by a multidrug-resistant organism.
1: Right. I, I found that part of your uh, article extremely helpful. And again, as, as you would probably tell me, as we all know, these patients are also at high risk for ventilator-associated pneumonia, and again, you're going to get the resistant organisms because of that, right?
2: That brings up one area that, that's, that's really interesting and really controversial, and that's the use of uh, antiseptics in the pharynx or topical antibiotics by gavage where the data actually do suggest that the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia can be reduced, not with topical antiseptics, but with uh, so-called selective gut decontamination with triple antibiotics. But unfortunately, even though the pneumonia rate uh, appears to be decreased, the mortality rate does not appear to be affected. And so, even though the data are strong in favor of selective digestive decontamination, It's not been widely adopted in practice, probably in part because it's cumbersome, probably in part because it is expensive, quite possibly because there's a disconnect between preventing pneumonia but not having any impact on the ultimate outcome.
1: Well, and as you pointed out before, we could do a whole other podcast on the prevention uh, or the controversies in trying to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, but I did also find that extremely helpful in terms of that the data seems to be there in the the early stages, but yet it really hasn't uh, taken a a real foothold becoming a a standard of care yet.
2: No, I think that's a fair characterization. Uh,
1: That was going to be my next topic. I do want to talk about, if I I could, a couple other important points, and and one that is reasonably new is this issue of a patient comes in with a um, upper GI bleed and it's found to be from varices and the role of antibiotics uh, there uh, for SBP prophylaxis, if you'd like to comment on that.
2: I would, uh, and uh, thank you for bringing it up. This is one of the few examples of a non surgical disease entity. That appears clearly to benefit from antibiotic prophylaxis. And here we're not talking about single dose prophylaxis or 24 hours of prophylaxis to cover a procedure or a surgical incision following an operation. We're talking about covering these patients with antibiotics for the duration of their stay in the intensive care unit. There are now uh, 19 trials. Uh, which show that antibiotic prophylaxis reduces the risk of infection, recurrent hemorrhage, and death in patients with portal hypertension and variceal hemorrhage. The effect is substantial. Antibiotic prophylaxis reduces the risk of infection by more than 60%, and the risk of death by 30%, which is really quite striking in these very, very high-risk uh, patients. What may be going on here, and this is uh, uh, speculation, but we know that in the healthy host, uh, the liver is the primary reticular endothelial host defense organism in the body. Those fixed-tissue macrophages, known as Kupffer cells, uh, are standing guard against uh, particulates, toxins, and maybe even live bacteria leaking out of the gut and into the portal circulation. If they're not cleared by the liver, then they gain access to the systemic venous circulation and can cause microembolization of other capillary beds, including the lung, um, skeletal muscle, and so on. Patients with cirrhosis basically have had their hepatic host defenses devastated. And we know that under surgical stress or the stress of sepsis, uh, that patients with cirrhosis and already compromised liver function can really decompensate. Uh, A child's P class A or B, for example, when they get sick, can very often become a child's pew uh, class C, which increases their mortality from emergency laparotomy, for example, up to about 80%, and their mortality from variceal hemorrhage up to about 65%. It may be that the little bacteremias that are associated with having a bowel movement, for example, or having a minor bedside procedure uh, can't be coped with uh, by the failing liver. And so the risk of systemic infection is magnified. And I think that's a plausible hypothesis as to why antibiotic prophylaxis benefits patients with portal hypertension, and variceal hemorrhage. They bleed. They become hypoperfused. uh, Their gut becomes ischemic. uh, Their gut becomes the source of bacteria, and the hepatic host defenses can't deal with it.
1: There was um we're getting near the end of the interview and there was one last question that actually wasn't in your article but I'm sure you have an opinion on and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic which which I believe is is should be at least considered here also is in patients with pancreatitis and I know the literature is uh controversial at best uh your 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 thoughts uh, looking at the literature for uh, antibiotics for what is considered by many to be prophylaxis for infection in this particular setting for severe acute pancreatitis
2: A topic near and dear to my heart, and I'm uh, grateful to you to um, bring it up uh, so that I can uh, get on my soapbox here. Uh, Antibiotic prophylaxis of severe acute pancreatitis is popular, but in my opinion and the opinion of the uh, Consensus Conference uh, that was supported in part by SCCM, and uh, published in the uh, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and in Critical Care Medicine as a consensus statement uh, argues that antibiotic prophylaxis should not be given in severe acute pancreatitis. There are several studies that purport to show benefit. Uh, Many of them are open label, Uh, some have major design problems and many of them did not include patients with severe pancreatitis. The most recent published trial, that by Eisenman et al. in gastroenterology in 2004, the best designed uh, study to date showed no benefit from antibiotic prophylaxis. And a study that has just been completed by uh, Patch Dellinger out at the University of Washington in Seattle also looking at antibiotic prophylaxis of severe acute uh, pancreatitis has also been completed and is also a negative trial, and we're waiting for that manuscript to uh, come out. So I would say that although highly popular and a widely prevalent practice, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis uh, is no longer indicated for severe acute pancreatitis based on the most recent data.
1: Well this is really great. I mean, I talked to you about this all day because this comes up where you'll have a patient that will, you know, sirs without infection, right? And so it's often very difficult an argument, well this patient has low grade sepsis, we need to be treating it, etc. You must have an opinion on that.
2: Well, I do. In fact, we looked at this in our own intensive care unit. The problem of sirs and whether it is due to infection and therefore sepsis, or whether it's a sterile inflammatory condition, is very common in surgical intensive care units in the early postoperative period, in multiply injured patients, in burned patients, and in patients with pancreatitis, just as several examples. Early on, these patients have a sterile pro-inflammatory response. Another good example of that would be aspiration pneumonitis. But they may or may not transition to infection. We looked and uh, published two years ago at more than 600 consecutive febrile episodes in our intensive care unit. The vast majority of the patients had SIRS and not just fever, but fully 50% of those febrile episodes, when approached by a standard diagnostic protocol, uh, were proved to be non-infectious in origin. So fever does not an infection make. Several studies have estimated that for patients who have the so-called CDC definition of pneumonia, meaning fever, leukocytosis, purulent sputum, and a new or changed chest radiographic infiltrate, only 40% of those patients will be proved to have pneumonia. So it's understandable to want to treat empirically and certainly a matter of clinical judgment. But if you do treat empirically, you've got to believe your data and either de-escalate or stop antibiotics at the earliest opportunity afforded you by negative culture results, meaning 48 to 72 hours. What this really highlights for me is that we need to be doing the best quality diagnostic studies we can do in patients with SERS or possible infection so that we can be as confident as as possible of the data when they do come back and do guide further therapy or stopping of antibiotics.
1: Um, We've had the great pleasure of speaking with Philip S. Barry, MD, MBA, FCCM. He is the chief of the Division of Surgical Critical Care and Trauma at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Weill Cornell Medical Center. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. I hope you've all enjoyed this podcast.
1: This concludes our podcast for Monday, May 1st, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care and Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official bimonthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare care professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription, as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening.
0: Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new clinical strategies and skills simulation in pediatric critical care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.